1: We make each other better. She always reminds me about what actually matters. You know, love conquers all. Wherever he
0: is, I, I want to be there, always. She just
1: always accepted me for who I was. He makes me a better person. It
0: was like love at first sight. Well, love is the most important thing.
1: It then all of a sudden made sense to me. If I'm doing this to myself because I hate myself, what would happen if I loved myself instead? Wouldn't it then make sense that some of these behaviors would naturally sort themselves out? And when I made that connection, that was magic.
0: Hi, I'm Nancy Regan. Today's love story belongs to Ronnie Davis. You've probably heard the saying, you have to learn to love yourself before you can really love someone else. Well, for a long time, Ronnie was obsessed with having the perfect body, but when she got it and it didn't bring her happiness, she eventually decided to look within and change her relationship with food and herself. Now she helps others do the same. This is the Canadian Love Map. Hi, Ronnie. Welcome to the Canadian Love Map.
1: Hi, Nancy. I'm so excited to be here with you.
0: I love it when people fill out our application and apply to be on this podcast because it's so fun to read the different applications. Yours was particularly intriguing because the first line of your answer, tell us about your love story, was this, my love story is about myself. Take it away, Ronnie. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me, first of all, what made you want to apply?
1: Well, (laughs) I think partly because I love your work so much already, and I love the podcast already. But also, I think because, you know, so much of my life I spent feeling like I was alone with the things that I was struggling with. Mm -hmm. And I know that there are still women out there right now struggling with the same things that I did when I felt so alone. And so any chance I have to share what I've been through, to help them, I'm all over it. Even though I do not enjoy talking about these things. (laughs) Yeah.
0: So it's a chance to amplify your contribution.
1: Yeah. That's my goal, hopefully. I thrive on knowing that, you know, the cliche, my pain had a purpose. Mm -hmm. I like finding purpose in my pain and, and knowing that there are still women out there that are living what I lived and that by hearing my voice, they'll not feel so alone and that they'll have some hope. Yeah. That's, that's for me really important. And so any chance I get to do that. And, you know, so when I saw the application, I thought, you know, self-love is a love story too. And it's probably one of the most important ones. I couldn't agree more. And that's my, that's my biggest part of my journey is, is learning to love myself. So
0: Okay, so before we get to that happy ending, we're going to dig into that pain you're talking about. (laughs) Sorry to say. (laughs) Yay! (laughs) Let's go back and start at the beginning for me. What was childhood like for you? Abusive alcoholic
1: father. Mother who was just trying to survive him and keep food on our table. So it was very difficult. I don't remember feeling safe, nurtured, loved, secure, All of those things that you hope that your child feels, I don't remember feeling those growing up. I knew that my parents loved me, but I don't remember feeling safe and secure and nurtured and loved. And I knew growing up that it was kind of messing me up somehow, but I didn't really fully understand how. I also had a mother who, she kept a calendar, and I think that she still does to this day, a calendar in our bathroom on the counter with her weight. Mm. So every morning, she'd write her weight on the calendar. Every day at noon, she'd write her weight. Every day at bedtime, she'd write her weight. Focus on size and and looks and weight was was a big factor and also all of the other things that went with that.
0: And did you feel that communicated to you as well? It wasn't just her obsession, if you don't mind me using that word, but she was communicating the importance of all that to you as well?
1: It was never directed at me, but I still internalized it because, you know, we learn from the people around us growing up. Mm -hmm. Like I learned from my mom and her mom and and my aunts and the people that were close to me. I learned what it meant to be a woman by watching my mom. And that's in no way, shape or form meant to sound like I'm blaming my mother for any of my, you know what I mean? It's just, it is what it is. She learned it from her mother.
0: Mm -hmm. She was the product of her upbringing,
1: Exactly. Yeah, as, as we all are. And so that's how I learned to be in the world. Even though it wasn't directed at me, I still internalized it.
0: Does the expression hurt people hurt people
1: resonate for you? <laughs> so, so much. So much of my life I spent hating my father because of the way that we grew up. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until I really started getting into self-discovery and really kind of understanding that hurt people hurt people, that I I really started being able to find some forgiveness for Mm. that, because I started recognizing that in him and in my mom, same thing, you know, they were both hurt in different ways. I started recognizing that they were just hurt people doing the best that they could.
0: How did your mother's example impact your relationship with your body?
1: Initially, it didn't really. It wasn't just my mother's example that impacted my relationship with my body, although that definitely set the stage for the message that what matters is how I look. Like I can remember being in fourth grade and sucking my belly in when I was walking to the to the chalkboard. Like I'm walking to the chalkboard to answer a question for the teacher, and I'm sucking my belly in as much as I can to try to make it as, look as small as I can. so there, there was definitely that aspect of it. And again, it wasn't just from her, but I I learned very early on that my currency lied in what I looked like and not much else.
0: That affects so much of your mentality then. It like bleeds into everything, doesn't it?
1: It bleeds into everything because I didn't feel like I was worth anything outside of how I looked. Didn't feel like I was lovable outside of how I looked. I always felt like I had to earn love. And the only way I knew to do that was to be small and look cute. Mm -hmm. And when I was younger, it was easy because I'm only five feet tall. And, and, you know, I'm I'm fairly compact. But as I started getting older, weight started going on. I was introduced to dieting in my early teens by an adult in my life who loved me and just wanted me to learn to eat healthy. So she gave me a copy of a low-carb book. And from that moment on, that, that really it really put the nail in the coffin, so to speak, in terms of my body image, because it started with my mom. It started with the fact that I had no self-worth. I had no ability to love myself or even know who I was outside of my, what I looked like before that book. But once I read that book, you know, it was so focused on how bad these particular foods were, not only for you, but also in terms of weight gain, what they would do to you, that Once I read that book, it it was like there was life before that book and life after that book. I was forever scared of gaining an ounce after reading that book. I was forever scared of food after reading that book. And I forever hated myself every time I touched a bad food after reading that book. So it really fueled the body hate and fear. It really fueled food fear. And it really fueled self-hate and loathing and shame every time I ate a bad food.
0: It really is that sense of duality of, of separating foods into good and bad. Mm-hmm. And I think it's interesting to hear you say how that impacted you then feeling good or bad.
1: That's the thing, right? It wasn't that I just ate the bad food. It was that I, as a person, was bad. Mm-hmm. You know, the fact that I, I grew up the way that I did with the alcoholic father, it it probably triggered that because... I think that there was probably already a part in me that felt like I was bad.
0: Like not enough?
1: Right. And I thought that my father was a monster growing up. He was he was a scary monster. But there was always a part of me growing up that felt like if my father was a monster and I'm his daughter, what does that make me? I, I really internalized that at a young age. And then everything that happened and, you know, the body image stuff, the food stuff, the dieting, all of that stuff really just fed that belief.
0: So how did your relationship with food and with your body change through your teenage years?
1: Through my teenage years, it didn't change a whole lot once that book came into play, right? So there was the, the book, there was that instant change. And then through my teenage years, after that instant change, it didn't really change a lot because that instant change just carried through my teenage years. So it was every time I would eat a bad food, I was bad. Constant obsession with the number on the scale and whether my pants were getting too tight and how I was going to finally lose that five pounds that I had put on. So that kind of consumed a lot of my teenage years. It wasn't until probably my early 20s that weight started going on even more. And then it, it kind of got worse after that.
0: And how did that impact you emotionally when you were putting on weight?
1: Oh, it was terrifying. It was terrifying because when your only currency is the fact that you're little and cute and you start losing that, I didn't know who I was and I started really hating the person that I thought I was because not only was I not so little and cute anymore... I was also a failure who couldn't stick to anything. Hmm. And it was always just a matter of like five pounds. Looking back, I can see like it was ridiculous, but I was so consumed with trying to get that off and how many times I failed at trying to get it off that I hated myself more and more and more. It just became this compounding effect of shame and hatred.
0: It's interesting because it makes me think that, you know, self-loathing is not logical.
1: No. At the time it feels it though.
0: It tricks you into thinking it's logical.
1: <laughs> it does. It's like, a, it's like it's gaslighting you. <laughs> yeah. But looking back, it's like, that doesn't make sense. But when you're in it, I don't think it's just about the self-loathing. I think it's, it's really about the stories that we tell ourselves about who we are based on the things that happen to us and how that compounds over time every time something else happens to us. It's like a confirmation bias. We start with one little story that says, "Well, maybe I'm maybe there's something wrong with me." And then every time anything happens, it confirms that and it builds it.
0: Absolutely. What was the next sort of turning point in your relationship with yourself?
1: It wasn't until early 2000s probably. You know, my daughter was born with some pretty severe health issues. And so early in her life, I was really completely consumed with caring for her. And interestingly enough, given the work that I do now, when she was born so sick and I felt really helpless to do anything to help her, I ended up starting a website dedicated to her condition and I wrote a book and I devoted my life to helping other moms who had kids going through what my daughter was going through. So it's, it's interesting that, that after she was born, that's just the direction my life took. Like, let me just help others with whatever I'm going through. Early in her life, her care was 24-7. But when I started coming out of that, when she started doing better and, you know, becoming more stable and I started coming out of that, I started going like, okay, wait a second. I'm really miserable. I'm really unhappy and not doing well in life here. And I blamed it on my weight. Mm-hmm well, it's just because I got fat. And all I need to do is lose the weight. And so I'm going to get serious now and I'm going to fix this problem. <laughs> mm-hmm. That was cute. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that sounds like sarcasm to me. <laughs> that was really cute. A little bit, maybe. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah, So at that point, the self-loathing hit a new, new high or low, however you want to look at it. Mm-hmm. And it's a really powerful motivator when it's strong enough, but it's not a motivator for positive things. Right. <laughs> so it, it motivated me to lose the weight, which was great at the time because I thought that was my problem. But when I got down to what the weight that I thought was gonna make me happy and love myself, I felt the same way I did at the heavier weight. And I went, huh, guess I need to lose more weight. So I lost more weight, still hated myself, Every time I set a goal for this thing that I thought was going to solve my problem of being so miserable and hating myself, I'd get there and I still hated myself. And so I'd have to set another goal to try to fix the problem again.
0: Right. And I guess you learned the hard way that when your goals are based in fear rather than love, they're (laughs) unattainable often.
1: They were based in fear rather than love, and they were based on the belief that I had to earn love by changing what my body looked like because I didn't deserve it any other way. Except that the truth of it was I didn't need to earn love, belonging, and acceptance from other people. I needed to learn to find it in myself. And that's why every time I hit a goal... It still wasn't there because the goal was never the solution. Finding it within myself was the solution. But it took me a long time to realize that.
0: We couldn't share the great stories that we do here on the Canadian Love Map podcast without the amazing support of Charm Diamond Centres. They are Canada's largest family-owned jeweler, and they're proud to be putting love on the map. The folks at Charm Diamond Centers are thrilled to be a part of your love story. So visit CharmDiamondCenters.com or one of your local stores. Love starts here. So you went pretty far down a road of fitness, didn't you?
1: Yeah, chasing goals. So in the bodybuilding world, there are a number of different divisions that you can compete in. Bikini is one of them, and this is sort of the, the lower end where... I think there's probably more to it now, but at least at the time, there's not a whole lot of muscle. Figure is in the middle where there's, you know, more muscle, a little bit more lean than bikini. And then the bodybuilders, like the female bodybuilders is the next one up. So I was there in the middle competing in figure. I was Canadian trainer of the year. I was, you know, in ads for bodybuilding.com. I was writing for bodybuilding websites. I was a champion figure athlete. I was pretty successful in that world. And I'll, I'll never forget on stage, five inch heels, teeny tiny competition suit, walking off stage with my trophies mm-hmm. and a huge smile plastered across my face that was hiding my confusion over the fact that I still hated myself <laughs> mm-hmm. because that was supposed to be the thing that fixed it. You know, I often say I wish every woman that's ever struggled with body image could have that experience one time of being handed trophies for what your body looks like and realizing this wasn't it. Right, yeah. It was never about this.
0: So what was the turning point for you?
1: The turning point was that it almost destroyed me. Everybody always says how difficult it is to change or even to make the decision to change. And absolutely, it is really, really hard. But for me, the decision to change eventually became really, really easy because it was continue to live like this or die. I don't say that lightly. I was engaging in behaviors at the time that we all associate with being healthy behaviors. It was exercising every day, it was eating clean, it was doing all the things you're supposed to do to be healthy, so I was engaging in behaviors that we associate with health, but none of what I was doing was healthy because during my first competition prep years earlier, I was introduced to clean eating. That brought me from just disordered eating, which I had been experiencing in the years prior, That bumped me up the next notch to full-blown eating disorder within about four days. Within about eight months, I was sitting in a therapist's office being diagnosed with bulimia. And I struggled with that for years. Eventually, it got so bad, there was also depression, panic attacks, anxiety disorder, and binge eating. The bulimia ended fairly early because my compensatory behaviors were starvation and overexercise. And those things suck. They were no fun. But I kept up with the binge eating for years. And it got so bad. I was hospitalized for a week one time because I couldn't stop eating. And by the end of it, I was going to bed every night feeling like I may die in my sleep. I had eaten so much. So you went from
0: really clean eating to binging, or you would, you would be very strict about your diet, and then you would binge, and when you were binging, you would just eat without a control measure that said, no okay, control. that's enough now.
1: No control. My body would say that's enough. The hole in my chest would say, I'm starving to death, and I will never be full, so you have to keep feeding me. So I would eat clean, white-knuckling my way through eating clean for as long as I could, but there was always the rebound of a binge pretty quickly afterwards. And so then I would promise myself the next day I was gonna stop and, you know, eat well again. and then three days later, another binge. and And at its worst, that became kind of a several times a week event where I was going to bed. My fingertips would be numb. My heart would be beating out of my chest, like major responses and and, reactions from my body because I had put so much food in it. Like I was eating to the point that I couldn't breathe right anymore because there was so much food in my body. And yet the hole in my chest still felt like, feed me. I'm not okay. Feed me. I need more. And I couldn't figure out at the time what that more was that I needed. I just knew that if I could put enough food in there, maybe it'd feel better. Never did.
0: Sounds very much like a, an addiction cycle. And I wonder, was there a time when you hit bottom?
1: There were so many bottoms. <laughs> I remember one time I was eating a bag. At the time, my candy of choice were jujubes. And I'd get like the big like pound bag of jujubes. Mm-hmm. And I remember eating in one sitting more than half the bag. And that does things to your body that make you not feel good. And I was recognizing that I'm not okay and I have to stop eating these. And so I, I threw them in the garbage can. I'd thrown candy away before, but I always went back in to get it. So this time, I dumped the candy out into the garbage can loose and I poured mustard all over it so that I wouldn't go back for it later because I'd ruined it. Mm-hmm. A few hours later, there I am in the in the garbage can, digging candy out of the garbage can and rinsing it off under the under the tap. You know, because... My compensatory behavior for over-exercise, because I was training so much for the figure competitions, I had perpetual injuries. And for years and years and years and years, I just trained around them and ignored them because, listen to my body, what? No, that's crazy talk. But eventually, it got to the point where my body was in constant agony. It just hurt all the time. The Binging was out of control, and I was in constant pain. To the point that I couldn't even train anymore. And so at that point, I went, okay, I give up. Everything I've been doing up until this point, I've been doing to try to be healthy and like myself and feel good about my life. And, you know, I've been trying, I've been chasing health and happiness and self love through all these external things for all these years. And look where I am. I'm in pain, physical pain, all the time. I can barely move. I want to cry. My body hurts so bad all the time. I'm constantly crying because I hate myself so much I can barely function. I'm having panic attacks over the thought of leaving my house. And then when I couldn't train anymore, that was the final straw because the training was the one thing I was leaning on to keep me feeling a little bit emotionally stable. And when I couldn't do that anymore, I really fell apart and I just went, okay, you know what? I got to change this and everything I've been doing up until this point has gotten me here. And so I have to abandon all of that and get real about changing the stuff that's going on in me that's causing this. Like the whole time I was in therapy, I would say to my therapist, why am I like this? I had this sense that there had to be some reason and he never gave me answers. But at this point I thought, okay, I've got to figure out why. Why? because if I can figure out why, if I can figure out what's driving it, I can figure out what I can do, what I need to do to change it so that I can actually be healthy and happy.
0: When did you round that corner and really understand that loving yourself instead of loathing was going to be the key (laughs) to solving this uh, struggle in your life?
1: I had read Louise Hay's book, You Can Heal Your Life. I'm sure you've probably heard of it. Everybody knows You Can Heal Your Life. It's been a bestseller for decades. I had read that. And uh, I mean, I was having visceral reactions to reading that book. Like, you know, she'd she'd write something and I would literally throw it across the room like it was radioactive and I couldn't look at it for another week because Mm -hmm. it would hit a nerve. And I remember in one part of it, she was listing all of the ways that self-loathing presents itself in our life. And it was like, somebody just made a checklist for me. (laughs) Check, check, Mm -hmm. check, check. And I went, huh, that's interesting. And I remember thinking at some point, I don't remember the moment that it happened or how it happened, but at some point I made the connection between the way that I'm treating myself and the fact that I hate myself, that's gotta be connected. Like people that love and value themselves don't do these things to themselves, right? Right. Because when we love and value someone or something, we treat them with love and kindness. And I was not treating myself with love and kindness. And in that moment, it then all of a sudden made sense to me that, okay, if I'm doing this to myself because I hate myself, what would happen if I loved myself instead? Wouldn't it then make sense that some of these behaviors, or actually most or all of these behaviors, would naturally sort themselves out? Because again, if you love and you value yourself, you don't treat yourself in those ways. And when I made that connection, that was magic.
0: So, how did it change your life when you really
1: began to figure that out? Slowly, I stopped binging. I stopped even overeating, I stopped craving the things that were making my body feel like crap, I stopped drinking. Every behavior that was previously allowed in my life that was so terrible for me, slowly just went away on their own. My self-betrayal stopped, my self-abuse stopped, I started showing up for myself in ways that I never had before. Because I started building that connection with myself that allowed me to recognize that, hey, you know what? I never needed anybody else to tell me that I was enough, that I was worthy of love. Because I can find that place in myself. I can give it to myself when I need it the most. I don't need anybody else's approval. And I don't need to abuse myself and continue betraying myself.
0: So, Ronnie, it's one thing to figure that out for yourself, and it is a slow, long process. I speak from experience.
1: (laughs) As you know, I know. Yeah.
0: But now you are in a place where you are helping other people make that same kind of transition in mindset and Mm -hmm. also, you know, changing their relationship with their bodies and with their diet. How does it feel for you to be helping others along that same difficult path that you walked?
1: It feels like the next level of healing. And it also feels glorious is the first word that came to mind, which Mm. sounds kind of silly maybe, but it, it feels like it fills my heart in a way that I don't even think I have words to express because I remember living it. I remember what it was like to feel so hopeless. I remember being there. And so to be able to use my experiences to help other women find that place in themselves where they just allow love, it's the most beautiful thing that I can imagine. It fills my heart. It fills my soul. It just fills my life with so much light and joy that I feel blessed every day. Because the truth is, finding that place in ourselves where... We are just love for ourselves first really is just as simple as allowing ourselves to do it. All we need to do is is allow ourselves to start looking. And you do
0: that through a lens of food. Is there one main thing, there are a lot of people listening, I'm sure, who have gotten to this point and can totally relate, is there one main thing that you try to help people do to shift the way they think about food in their lives?
1: Yes. The biggest thing that I work on with the women that I work with is allowing themselves to eat whatever they want, whenever they want, even as much as they want. And every time I say that to somebody, they kind of recoil.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it sounds counterintuitive.
1: Exactly, exactly. It's the opposite of what we've been taught. But the reality is when we allow that, and when we stop judging ourselves and obsessing over food so much, we have the mental and emotional ability then to access that place of love for ourselves, right? Because the food obsessions, the weight obsessions, all of those things, they're external distractions, That's all they are, they're external distractions from the fact that there's a hole in us where love should be. Mm. And when we take away the distractions, we can focus on filling the hole with love. And then when you love yourself enough, you naturally gravitate towards things that help you feel your best. You start craving the foods that help you feel your best. Not a goal to chase, it's the natural outcome of learning to love yourself.
0: That's a beautiful way to look at it. I want to wrap up by asking you, what is your relationship with yourself like now? And, you know, often if I'm talking to a couple, I say, what do you love most about yourself? So that's how I want to ask that question.
1: I love my resilience. I love my persistence. I am like a dog with a bone, and that's how I manage to heal. I love the fact that I never give up on myself and I never give up on other people either. And I love that I'm so willing to use what happened to me to help others find their way through what they're struggling with, because a lot of people just kind of heal and then move on with their life. But I really love that part of me that says, no, you know what? Like, I need to use this for some good.
0: So, Ronnie, if there's someone out there listening right now who is wondering, how do I get in touch with this woman? She's telling my story. How can they find you?
1: Probably the easiest thing is my website www.ecet.online. Beautiful. That's fantastic.
0: Thank you so much for sharing your journey with us and being so open and honest about it. I really think it's a uh, a value to so many, especially women. And you know, I've got my right hand in the in the air right now saying, "I need to hear all of this still <laughs> at the age of 56." So thank you, Ronnie, so much.
1: I think that's an important reminder, Nancy, that this is a process. It's not a one and done. It's a constant practice. And so thank you for giving me the space to be able to share. I appreciate that. And I appreciate your time. And I appreciate the work you do as well.
0: Our pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Canadian Love Map. If you love us, please subscribe and share. And if you want to help us spread the love even more, rate and review our podcast. It makes such a difference. We'll be back next week with another love story to add to the map. This podcast is presented and made possible by Charm Diamond Centers. It's hosted by me, Nancy Regan, and is produced and distributed by Podstarter.